Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Sports History Network and the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. This is episode 51 of the Hello, Old Sports podcast. We just recently had our 50th episode celebration extravaganza, and we are excited to see what the next 50 has in store for us. I, as always, am Dan Newman, the co-host of the Hello Old Sports podcast, and I am joined by my brother and co-host, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Dan. I am uh, freshly back from uh, my annual baseball trip, gradually going through all of the stadiums. We were in Atlanta this past week at Truist Park. That's the name of it, T-R-U-I-S-T. I'm not saying it was the truest park I've ever seen. They had a Hall of Fame area that it wasn't confined to a Hall of Fame, but it was sort of spread out right behind the home plate in the lower level. And they actually did a really, really good job with it. So I was uh, I was impressed with that. So I'm uh, all hopped up on baseball history. And we have a special guest with us this evening for, I guess, what this, I think this is the third time you've been on. Uh, this is my lovely wife, Allison Newman, is with us. Allison, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. So this is going to be a little bit of a different episode tonight. First of all, it'll probably be much shorter than what we usually do. And second of all, it's not really not really a specific topic that we're diving into as much as just sort of a recollection of a day that we all spent together a couple weeks back. We made reference to this in the last episode that one of the cool things that the Sports History Network has been able to do in the couple of years that we've been in existence is get uh, media passes to some of the Hall of Fame inductions. And I know that Arnie and Darren and a couple of the others have in past years gone and attended the Pro Football Hall of Fame inductions in Canton, which uh, actually, as we're recording this, that was just this past weekend. And that's hopefully something that we'll be able to do uh, here on Hello Old Sports at some point in the future. But we, uh, Andrew and I, being such great baseball fans and lovers of baseball history, plus the fact that it's much more local for definitely more local for Andrew and probably just about the same for us. We were able to get uh, media passes to go to the Hall of Fame induction and Cooperstown for the Baseball Hall of Fame a couple of weeks back. And when it was discovered uh, when this would be and who it would be with, I had a very strong need to include my wife, Allison, because first of all, the induction took place uh, the day before her birthday. And second of all, it included a Red Sox Hall of Famer, now Hall of Famer, and sort of the leader of the team during their renaissance of the 2000s, David Ortiz. And Allison, being such a big Red Sox fan, was eager to see Mr. Ortiz inducted. So we put in, we got some media passes, and we sort of observed the proceedings. We 
observed the town. We obviously viewed the Hall of Fame induction and then went went into the backstage area for the media availability of the three living Hall of Famers, David Ortiz, Jim Cott and Tony Oliva. So just a really good, fun, interesting, informative day, I think, that we had in late July in Cooperstown. And so we just want to take a couple of minutes here to kind of tell you about our experiences. Yeah, um, it was definitely a, uh, I don't want to say a once in a lifetime thing, because hopefully not. It was definitely a once in a so far this lifetime thing. Um, (laughs) And, you know, just right off the bat, it's, I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's like, it's different. We've all been to Cooperstown a bunch. It's such a different environment that day. And it's cool to see everything so alive. And there's so many people and, and such big crowds. But there's part of you that's also like, I kind of like it when I'm here, when it's a little more quiet. And, you know, you part of Cooperstown is sort of the whole thing of like, oh, you stroll down the street and you feel like you're in like a simpler time and you're in a small town. And, you know, you definitely get there's no shortage of large crowds, whether it's at the ceremony or walking the streets downtown or in the hall of fame itself. So that is the one part of it. You kind of miss when you're there during induction weekends. And it's funny because Alice and I have gone a few times in the past. I think the first time we went was in, we went, I had been before and so had she, but we went in mid October one time. And then one couple years back, we were there in late October and that was, uh, October of 2020. So that was very much when things were still very thin uh, because of COVID. And so, and we, but we've been there during the summer. So we've been there at various times with sort of different levels of crowded and not crowded and fan involvement, that type of thing. And the three of us, along with our parents, you know, Andrew and my parents, it's funny, we were actually there in 21 right before the induction because they did so they did a little different last year with the induction it was being held on i think it was like a wednesday and it was the wednesday after labor day and we just happened to be up there in cooperstown for a long weekend at labor day so we kind of caught the beginnings of the induction ceremony last time but this was the first normal one in three years where they did it on a weekend they had you know all the trimmings all of the ceremonies and golf tournament and all of the the parade the day before with all the hall of famers. So this was the first real honest to God induction weekend that they'd had in three years. And I think they said the exact number, I think it was like 35,000 was the number of attendees, which being there, I didn't seem to think it was that many, but they, they got a really good crowd for it. Yeah. I always wondered how they estimate that. I mean, I guess they know how many seats there are and they, they can you know figure out the sort of picnic area or the, the area outside the fence. But um, yeah, they, they made reference in a few different times to like, Oh, welcome back to like normal schedule, you know, time. So. So let's bring in our resident Red Sox fan here, because I would say that probably 90% of the people were there for Ortiz. The, the inductees were, David Ortiz, Tony Oliva, Jim Cott. Those were the three living inductees. You had Bud Fowler from the very early days of the Negro Leagues. You probably wouldn't even call him the Negro Leagues. It was just kind of independent. He played both independent black baseball and independent, quote, you know, quote unquote, integrated baseball in, in the 19th century. You had Buck O'Neill from the Negro Leagues, um, you know, long, you know, lifelong figure in baseball, but got his start with the Negro Leagues and the Kansas City Monarchs in the 30s and 40s. And then you had... 
Gil Hodges and Minnie Minoso, two players uh, also elected by the Veterans Committee from the, the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s time period. But between Red Sox fans and people who shared a Dominican heritage with Ortiz, I would say about probably 80 to 90 percent were there for Ortiz. You saw some twin shirts. You saw a little bit of Mets. And then you had people like us who were just sort of there to observe. But Allison is we a Red working. We were working exactly right. We were working. We we're preparing this this masterpiece of a podcast that we're putting together here. So, Allison, as as a Red Sox fan, as somebody who saw Ortiz play you know, dozens of times, what was the experience like for you? Well, I think it's something that a lot of Red Sox fans always worried would never happen after his name appeared on that list back in whatever year that was. The Red Sox have historically never tired a number until after a player had gotten into the Hall of Fame, but they retired his the year after he retired for fear that something like that would happen. So I think it was, you know, it was a it was a very well-deserved honor for sort of the guy who took over Boston for you know, the majority of his, I think it was 13 year career in, in the city. Yeah, it definitely was. So we can kind of take this in any direction that we, that we want to go here, but maybe just talk a little bit, but we should just talk a little bit before about kind of just like the whole process for us. You know, we, we woke up that morning early, drove up, we'd never been there before. And what it is, is you, you get there and you park in a, in a satellite lot and then there's a bus just for the media that sort of circulates between the parking lot where the ceremony is going to be. And then the downtown area where the hall of fame is and all the people walking around. And so we got there and as we're driving up and we're, we're sort of pulling up to this media lot, what, what immediately came to mind was Woodstock and obviously not on the scale or very different than Woodstock in a lot of ways, but you know, you people, people parking and then walk, walking long distances, some with, you know, backpacks and coolers and that type of thing. So it really kind of felt like a pilgrimage and that all these people had descended on this small town in upstate New York for this special day. And so that was the really kind of the first thing that struck me. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I, I the first kind of note I have is we got, we got parked in the media lot, which was like an open field. And then we're on the bus and we're driving past lots of people who are, you know, parking lots of people who were there just to go to the ceremony as fans, spectators, whatever you want to call them. And the first note I have written down, and this doesn't surprise me, but just kind of looking, I'm like, it's a lot of New England license plates. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> these weren't, I wasn't seeing fans out there. I was, I was just seeing cars, but I'm like a lot of Massachusetts, a lot of uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, you know, that I've paid a lot of attention to license plates in the last six months just so because my girlfriend and I have been, kind of playing the license plate game. We're trying to get each state one. So I just, my eye was naturally drawn there. And I'm like, yep, that's about what I expected. But before I'd even seen a person, I was like, yep, that's about the ratio I was expecting. So so we get there and we go to the, the Clark Center and we check in and we get our media credentials. And then we we walk down, uh, we walk down the main street to sort of observe the Hall of Fame, you know, kind of walk around the area for, for a couple of hours before the ceremony starts. And it's it's neat because you can just tell what an event it is for the people who live in the area. Well, we, there was a guy, we didn't actually end up going back, although I wish we had. There was a guy just in his yard who'd set up a the whole setup and he was grilling hot dogs and burgers and selling them for $2 a piece and soda and bottled water. So it just, it was really very kind of just a festive atmosphere. And it, that kind of, to me, was really neat. 
And then we walk down and we're walking down Main Street. And I, it's, I don't know, it's probably like late morning by this point. And you're running into, you just keep seeing different people. We, we, we saw Tim Kirkjian, who had been honored the day before as, you know, sort of the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame. They induct somebody every year to that writer's wing of the Hall of Fame. And he was just standing there doing a podcast or any being not doing a podcast, but being interviewed by somebody recorded, presumably for a podcast. And so you're walking down the street and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's somebody, there's somebody. That, that to me was also just something that was a really cool part of the just the atmosphere and something you just don't don't see every day. Yeah, the first guys are, we saw Art Shamsky and Ed Cranepool from the 69 Mets there. Just just all, if you've never been to Cooperstown, A, you should obviously go, but B, you know, there's like a main street area and it's pretty much entirely either restaurants, but mostly like memorabilia places or bookstores or, you know, it's all Hall of Fame related and really out basically outside of everything third store there was a group of a table of either hall of famers or baseballs historical baseball players or whatever signing autographs taking pictures that kind of thing we saw juan marichal hall of fame great hall of fame pitcher juan marichal who i believe what is marichal's nationality is he is he also dominican or is he cuban uh let me look that up so we saw him and yeah let's just take a second here and kind of He's Dominican also, so he must he would have been very popular among, you know, the Dominican fans who were there for and for um, for Oliva. So he would have been really, really popular among those. And then I think the, the most interesting one we saw was we saw Bill Spaceman Lee, who is not a Hall of Famer, but was a star pitcher for the Red Sox, among other teams in the mid 1970s. And a guy walked by and Lee was signing autographs or whatever he's doing. And these guys charge their, you know, their 10 or 15 bucks, whatever it is for their autograph. And a guy walked by, he wasn't getting an autograph, but he shook hands with Bill Lee and Bill Lee shook his hand and said, Hey, it's nice to meet you, buddy. And the guy had an Ortiz shirt on. He said, Oh, number 34 Red Sox. That's Don Zimmer. And that was in fact, Don Zimmer's jersey number when Zimmer managed the Red Sox in the late 70s and Bill Lee and Don Zimmer could not stand each other. So it was just funny, you know, to see a guy's dislike for somebody else that you'd read about and heard about several times in the past and then to see it kind of acted out in real time right in front of you. It was I thought it was witty and I just I really got a kick out of it. Those were the cool kind of interactions that you were hoping to observe. And we got to see a couple of those. Yep. I, uh, then we went into a couple of the, like the stores, you know, the, these were the, the official like baseball hall of fame stores. Um, and they, they had different shirts up with all the different, a lot of different teams with all of their hall of famers listed. And that's the next note I have is you, while you guys were in line, I was just kind of walking around looking and I got a couple of, uh, little anecdotes here. There was one where this guy was explaining to his daughter that it was a shirt with all the hall of famers of the white Sox players. Cause he was a white Sox fan. And he said, Oh, here's Minnie Minoso. And here's Frank Thomas. That would be like a heartwarming moment, except for his daughter was literally like two. And, he, he's trying to explain to and she clearly didn't understand anything. And then in that same store, there was a guy, he was wearing an Arizona coyotes t-shirt. And he said to whoever it was, who was with him, he said, 
I'm a big t-shirt guy. Actually, I'm a t-shirt snob. I'm not us. sure that that's not a thing. <laughs> I, 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 that you can't be a t-shirt snob. You can like t-shirts. You can have a, a certain taste in t-shirts. You can't really be a t-shirt snob. <laughs> but anyway, none of that's and and that guy was Jim Cott. No, it was <laughs> not Jim Cott. <laughs> but. But uh, those are just my two little anecdotes while you guys are in line. And I was, but just and the, the funny the thing I thought that was neat too is because I remember you used to have a ton of these when we were kids. The little yellow placard, the little yellow like postcards yeah. of all the the Hall of Fame guys, like the, the, their actual plaques. I guess they still do those. And they do still do them. Yeah. They had a sign up that said that like those little placards would be available for the new guys, but not until after the ceremony. So that a you had to go back down there to go see them, and I can see where it would be distracting. You're trying to, you know, you just distract because otherwise you'd be trying to watch the ceremony, and all you'd be doing is you'd be looking at and you'd be reading the placards. <laughs> the Casey Stengel reference from the '62 Mets for those of you who that doesn't need to be explained. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> And we, uh, Allison, we kind of we stocked up a little bit on Hall of Fame uh, memorabilia. If we you did. Will. I was instructed by my mother to bring home a T-shirt. So we we made that happen. And you got quite a few books while we were there, too. Not memorabilia, but other things. Yeah, I got I got a few books, not at the uh, not at the Hall of Fame, but at the um, Willis Money books in Cooper, Main Street, Cooperstown, which is one of my favorite bookstores in the country. Yeah. Obviously, a great place to get used books and Allison got to visit her good friend, Henry. Oh, yes. For those who haven't been to Cooperstown, there is a store. I term it the life is good store because he sells a lot of life is good. But he has a golden retriever that must weigh at least 120 pounds. And he's about six years old. And he just greets all of the customers and lets you lay on the floor with him and pet him. So I think Dan and I have probably met Henry about 10 times over the past few years. And he is a lovable little guy. And when I was in Cooperstown for a Sabre convention in April, I purchased you a Henry T-shirt. You did. <laughs> and you, uh, this last time, purchased a, for our forthcoming child, you bought a little Henry uh, baby outfit for, did, uh, yes. for the baby. Yes. We will not be matching, but nonetheless, the baby <laughs> will, uh, and it's actually a picture of Henry as a baby, as a puppy. So it's, it's a very fitting. <laughs> Yeah. And, and when I was at the Sabre convention in April, I parked in that area right by Double Day Field. And as I was leaving, it was right at, right at five o'clock and I was going to my car to get my car and go back to the hotel a little while for a little while before dinner. And Henry and the guy who runs the shop were driving home from the day of work. And Henry was seated directly in the front seat, just peering out the window. <laughs> so Henry, Henry is the Henry's the boss of that that whole operation. So so we we really enjoyed kind of being down there and I got my Gil Hodges t-shirt that I've worn a couple times and we got ourselves a Christmas ornament because because we've you know we collect Christmas ornaments for various places that we go and travel to and then we actually it was a funny story not to jump too far ahead before but before we get to the induction with the postcards we got to the main Hall of Fame gift shop and the postcards weren't out yet we couldn't find one and I wanted a Hodges one and Allison wanted an Ortiz one for your mother, right? Correct. This was after the, you're talking this one, yep. this being after? This was after the induction, yeah. And so when we were there, they weren't out yet, even though they were supposed to be. And I kind of, in the back of my mind, was there's this other, there's this bookstore. Those of you who have been to the 
been to the Hall of Fame, know what I'm talking about. It's sort of a satellite gift shop. It doesn't have a lot of doesn't have clothes, but it's a very it's just specific to books and other things like that. DVDs and they have I think they have some shot glasses and that type of thing, but no, no clothing, which is the vast majority of what the gift shop is. And I kind of went down there was during some downtime and I found all the postcards. So I got an Ortiz one for Allison's mother and then I got my own. I got my Hodges one. So we were able to get one, even though we didn't think we might be able to. So lots of lots of collectibles lots of memorabilia and lots of memories and then it was time for the ceremony we kind of we got on the bus we made our way back up there it was hot it was probably pushing 90 degrees and so we we sprayed on our sunscreen but even just waiting it was just a really really enjoyable time just to be there they had the MLB network feed up and they were talking about all the different hall of famers and and they, they, go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say, that's the, the one thing I, I had written here at this point was like, David Ortiz is the only one who got in on like the what we consider the normal ballot, the baseball writers ballot. Everybody else was from various different committees and things like that. One positive of there only being one guy getting in on sort of the modern ballot was that those guys got more time. Like the veterans the committee guys did. Yeah. On the pregame show, they, yeah, they did a lot with Ortiz and they interviewed him and, and, you know, they certainly spent a lot of time on him, but there were also long retrospectives on Buck O'Neill, on Jim Cott, on Tony Oliva, Minnie Minoso. It would be a lot to ask them to spend a lot of time on Bud Fowler, to be honest. Like as much as I love baseball history, I wasn't really expecting that, but like, there have been five modern era guys who got in. How much time do you think Jim Cott or Tony Oliva would have gotten on those shows? You know what I mean? Yeah. And they might've gotten a little more just because they were living, but the guys who had passed away, the you know Hodges, Minoso, those guys probably would have gotten even a lot less. So you're absolutely right about that. And the last thing on that note, and this is where I have the, I have a circled note here. And I've thought this before, but just being there, for this, you have to almost, not almost, you do. I love the Hall of Fame, the building. I loved what we did there. You have to find a way to separate the Hall of Fame itself and the weekend we had and the building and all the cool memorabilia. Like, I love the whole third floor where it's all like stadium stuff, like the cornerstone of Ebbets Field and the cornerstone of Shot Park is there. Separating all of that from the crap associated with the inductions. You've made that point on our Hall of Fame episode the last couple of years. Yeah. Okay. So I won't make it a third time, but you know what I mean? It's like, this is all so cool. Like, I don't want it to be bogged down by like, well, how come they'll let this guy in and not this guy? That's fine, but you got to kind of separate. And that segues a little bit into sort of the next thing I want to talk about, which is they bring back the old hall of famers and they introduce them one by one. It's mostly guys from the last, you know, who retired, you know, sometime in the nineties or after Ken Griffey, Jr. Frank Thomas, Wade Boggs, the Randy Johnson, all, all of the Braves pitchers, Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz. And I, I can't swear that each and every one of these guys was there, but you get the kind of idea of, who the, who those types were the one that stood out the most to me was Sandy Koufax and he's an older guy. He's somebody who is very much sort of a private person 
doesn't appear in public, never does an interview. You never hear of an interview with Sandy Koufax. And I don't believe he comes back. Well, there was a time, wasn't there, wasn't there a time he was on a show doing an interview and God. somebody called in and would only, was only wanted to talk about the local pop Warner football coach. If you keep making Simpsons references, Allison is going to leave. So. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That was a Simpsons reference. You'd have to assume that Koufax was there because of Gil Hodges. That would just be my educated guess. I haven't seen that anywhere, but my, and who knows, maybe he just wanted to make another trip to the hall of fame as he's getting on in years. But I'd have to imagine that Hodges was a part of that thought process for Sandy Koufax for being there. And then Andrew actually knew about this and I hadn't heard of it, but there was a surprise apparently because I guess Reggie Jackson and Goose Gossage had been making some noise before the fact that they weren't going to go because of Ortiz and the steroids. But then at the end, I guess some others stepped in. I don't remember if you give me a second, I might be able to look at it and see maybe who it was, but they kind of changed their mind last minute and both decided to attend the ceremonies. Andrew, I think you had actually told me about that as we were sitting there. Yeah. I think I had seen that the day before that they had, they had changed their minds and they were, it was the first I'd heard of it. It was like Jackson Gossage reverse course will be coming after all. And I mean, here's the thing. Gossage is a crank. Like he's got problems with everything. He kind of does. Yeah. Jackson, uh, Jackson's a guy who I think most of his motivations are selfish. So he probably was like, well, these guys numbers are too close to mine and I didn't have to step. You know what I mean? Like I said, that's a subject for another day. David Ortiz deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. Does he deserve to be in before Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds? Probably not, but that doesn't, that's a, that's a different thing. If you were really going to boycott it because you were upset about that, you would actually do it. The fact that they were convinced at the last minute not to do it probably means it was all about them to begin with, especially when you fact, and I love Reggie Jackson, but like, he's not exactly a guy who does things his own interest is usually the main thing Reggie Jackson is concerned with. And Gossage is just a grump. You can't get past the fact that maybe they were just looking for a little bit of attention, perhaps with the whole thing. Yeah. Or they wouldn't have backed off. of. So that to me, the I, Koufax was like the one guy and maybe others did too, but I remember Koufax was the one guy who got a standing ovation, which I thought was fitting. I mean, you got to figure Stanley Koufax has been in the hall of fame. He was elected to the hall of fame in, I think it was 1971 and he was really young because he retired from baseball at a very young age. I think he was, he might've been like 30, 31 when he retired from baseball. He was older than me or younger than me. I should say when he was elected to the hall of fame, I think he was elected at age 36 and he's been in the hall of fame now for 50 years, which is just absolutely crazy at Koufax born in 35 and inducted into the Hall of Fame in 72. So he was 36, 37 years of age when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so and he was born on he was born, by the way, December 30th of 35, <laughs> basically 36. So. Mm-hmm. so yeah, he was 30. He was 36 when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he. He's been maybe and that, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe that's part of it, too. You, you know, who knows what his thought process was, but this was the 50th anniversary of his being elected into the Hall of Fame. How many guys live long enough to spend 50 whole years in the Hall of Fame? Somebody like Jim Cott, 
or Tony Oliva, you were so happy for them and not to be morbid, but they get to live the last, you know, decade to decade or two of their lives as Hall of Famers. Sandy Koufax has lived 50 years of his life as a Hall of Famer. So we don't have to necessarily go sort of guy by guy and talk about each one, but maybe sort of just general thoughts, impressions of the whole the whole ceremony. And maybe we'll start with Allison. What were your thoughts? I thought that, I mean, obviously we've said that four of the seven inductees were deceased. I thought the sort of way in which they involved either the family or a, a former uh, or a hall of famer to do their speeches, I thought was very well done. They were able to hit on the highlights of the career and also the importance of this moment for them and their family and what, it, how meaningful it was. So I thought that was a really nice, a nice touch. Yeah. I think Buck O'Neill had his niece, Gil Hodges had his daughter, Gil Hodges, incidentally, whose wife is still alive and still lives in the same house they lived in in Brooklyn 50 years after he passed away. Tony Oliva had his, well, Tony Oliva was there himself. Uh, Minnie Minoso had his, his former wife, um, you know, his wife until he passed away. And then I actually really was impressed with, with the Bud Fowler induction because his descendants, um, I don't even know that he had descendants, but are have long since passed away. And so Dave Winfield gave a speech on behalf of Bud Fowler and, and sort of talked about not only Bud Fowler's career, but his importance to the history of baseball, his importance to black baseball, and even talked about then Bud Fowler, who is the only Hall of Famer who ever actually lived in Cooperstown. He wasn't born there, but he lived there for a decent chunk of his young life. And Winfield talked about going to visit Bud Fowler's grave the day before. So Winfield, I think, was a good guy for that moment. He gave a good speech. He he clearly had given a lot of thought to it, which I respected. He didn't get the impression they'd just kind of been thrown there at the last minute. So I really all his speeches were good. Hodge's daughter gave a really good speech talking about what she, what he meant not only to her, but to the family, to his teammates, to the guys he managed on the Mets. I really thought Buck O'Neill's niece did a really good job because she kind of talked about him less as a player and more as a human being. She talked about going to church with him every Sunday and his favorite Bible verse and what he was, what it was like to have Buck O'Neill as somebody in your life. And I think Buck O'Neill, that's at the end of the day, that's what he was inducted as he was inducted as sort of, he was a good player in the Negro leagues, not a great player, but a good player, but he was inducted as sort of a lifelong ambassador for baseball. And so I thought that the type of speech that was given for him where they talked less about him on the field and more about him just as a man, I thought that was fitting for the type of inductee that Buck O'Neill is. So I just wanted to, I'll go through some notes that I had for a couple of these. I thought it was a very interesting touch with Jim Cott talking about his parents driving to Cooperstown in 1947 to go to lefty groves induction grove was his dad's favorite player yeah which i mean by that point the hall of fame itself was what like eight nine years old at that point like i know they started inducting guys but the building itself was what 39 was when the first like ceremony took place correct so like the fact that that early was like that important to a guy to go like oh we're going you know 
driving from what was it, Michigan or something like that, to go to Jim Cott's induction. That I thought, or not Jim Cott, to go to Lefty Grove's induction. I thought that was really cool. The thing with with Minoso when he when they were talking, like I just had written this note down. It's not specific to him, but like the thing with Latin players was almost grosser. What they did, like okay, no black players were allowed in the league. That's obviously horrible and, you know, is a sign of the times and is a stain on American history. The fact that Latin players, basically like two guys could be from the same country or town, and they just kind of like made this determination based on how dark their skin was. That's so like, there were Cuban players who could play, but then there were Cuban players who couldn't play. I, I, I don't know. It's I'm not saying it's worse but it's just like i don't know in some ways it's grosser you know what i mean it was more judgmental it was like is this yeah. person is this person white enough to play in the league yeah so like because the big thing with minosa was he was the first dark-skinned latin american player let me see if i had anything else to talk about uh quickly here hodges obviously um you know there were some new yorkers in front of us guys from guys in mets jerseys and, and dodgers jerseys with with Hodges and I've heard the story before about the church saying go home and pray for Gil Hodges. Mm-hmm. Buck O'Neill, I was really glad they had Buck O'Neill go on second, uh or go on second to last. The only issue I had was and and I agree with it, but part of me felt a little antsy because I'm like, people have already been through a lot. They're largely hearing about players who were either deceased or played a long time ago. 90% of the people, like you said, are there for David Ortiz. So I could almost feel the crowd getting antsy for the Buck O'Neill thing to be over. And maybe that was projection. I I agree. I think they put him in that second to last spot because of his sort of, you know, importance and and the gravitas. But there was part of me that's like, I kind of worry that people are sort of like, I was kind of worried they were going to start chanting for Big Poppy at any second. Yeah, because it had become very much sort of a a festive atmosphere and even some of the Ortiz fans were sort of off in the crowd. It's hard to explain if you're not there, but like, you know, there was the ticketed area, including the media area that we were in. And then there were just people who could just come without a ticket and just kind of, you know, be on the lawn and bring their lawn chairs and sort of off on one side, a bunch of the Ortiz fans. And every once in a while, you'd hear them, you know, sort of chanting for Big Poppy. It never got to the point where it was disruptive of the rest of the ceremony. But I think you're Mm -hmm. right. You kind of were like, uh, you know, in the middle of the speech for Jim Cott or for Bud Fowler, is this Ortiz festivity going to overtake what's actually going on at the moment? So your point is a good one. I think there was always just a little bit and it, it never got to that point. There were a few times during the day where you thought maybe it might start to creep close to that. So I think that's kind of the type of thing you're talking about. And then just the last thing, Ortiz's speech, obviously, I think delivered as sort of the main event. He did part of it in English, part of it in Spanish. He, you know, thanked a lot of the other Hall of Famers, sort of went through his career. I was surprised how much time he gave to the Twins, to be honest. Like, and I mean, I guess that's the organization he came up with, but I was surprised sort of how much he had to say about people in that organization and stuff, which I thought was a nice touch. You got kind of what you wanted out of every individual speech, obviously, with the limitation on a lot of them. You know, more than half of them were no longer alive. A couple of interesting things that I noted, both 
Oliva and Cott mentioned Jack McKeon, who at the age of 91 was in attendance at the ceremony. Jack McKeon, who started his managerial career in 1973 with the Royals. And then in 2003, at the age of 73, joined the Marlins as manager midseason and led them to a World Series title. And, and actually, and I had forgotten about this in 2011 at 80 years of age. I don't know who got fired in, in 2011, but the Marlins actually brought Jack McKean back to manage 90 games. He went 40 and 50. Which that was, when Ozzie Guillen got fired? That might have been. Who were the managers? Edwin no. Rodriguez. Edwin Rodriguez oh, okay. and then Brandon Hyde, who must have been, you know, he, that was just a guy who just managed one game. He was that interim manager. And then and then Jack McCain. So I guess he must have been uh, with the twins when both of those guys were there. So that's kind of cool. In addition to the Hall of Famers, these other guys that come back for the ceremonies, guys that have been around baseball and, you know, maybe aren't going to be around for too much longer. and. So he was, yeah, I don't, I'm not seeing where he was a coach manager. Of the, oh yeah, here we go. He was a, um, he worked in the farm system of the Washington senators and later the twins. And he managed their triple a teams in Vancouver, Dallas, Atlanta. He was a scout, led the triple a team in from 69 to 72 in Omaha. So somebody who was involved with the twins organization for a long time before he moved on to the Royals. So it was it was neat to see guys like that get thanked. Cod also made the point. I don't know if he did this during his induction or afterwards, but he said something along the lines of he actually thinks he would have gotten into the Hall of Fame sooner if he'd retired earlier, not just because he would have been eligible earlier, but because maybe the later years of his career hurt him. That's sort of an interesting baseball question. And I guess it's a question in other sports, too, whether these guys hurt their legacy or their Hall of Fame chances by sticking around for too long. The other interesting point that they made about Jim Cott was that he, and I'd imagine he's the only guy, he faced both Ted Williams and Daryl Strawberry in regular season play, which is just crazy to think about because you just don't think about those guys in the same era at all. So all of those guys were interesting, but as everybody has sort of alluded to Ortiz was definitely the, the highlight. He was the one most of the people had come to see. So why don't we return to our resident Red Sox fan, Allison, and just tell me a little bit about your impressions of Ortiz, the speech, just the whole thing. I think his speech was very much in line with the type of you know, his gregarious personality, even just the way he kicked it off. It sounded like he was at a rock concert saying what's up Cooperstown, which is not how anyone else sort of began their speech. But I think, you know, he paid a lot of, I I liked how he, in the past, you've seen players sort of give their speech in English and then have a message at the end in Spanish, where he very much mixed it in throughout his entire speech. When he was thanking his parents, he spoke in Spanish. When he was talking about the Red Sox and the time on the twins, it was in English and it was just a lot of back and forth. I think he also, there were a lot of players that, you know, he obviously spoke about the twins and, you know, even I remember they were showing, uh, they were showing some of the twins who were in the hall of fame as he was giving his speech. And I think he mentioned Paul Molitor and you kind of like saw his face kind of do a little like surprise that he was getting mentioned. 
during the speech. And then, you know, it was, there was a huge apparent contingent from the Red Sox, former Red Sox players who were also there that all got quite the shout out. So I think that was pretty amazing. And then I had read somewhere, maybe it was one of you two that even told me that the president of the Dominican Republic had sent up a delegation. So there was, you know, his whole homage to, to his home country and all of that as well. So I thought that was, I just thought his speech was very much, it was with the personality that he played with. And he made sure to shout out a lot of his teammates. I have down here. He called Dustin Pedroia Peewee. And he, but he shouted out, he shouted out Pedro, obviously, who's his very good friend and, and Johnny Damon and some of these other guys. So it was very much not just about him, but sort of a tribute to the whole era of the Red Sox. And it was funny, too, because he kind of represents he is the rep- representative of that era. And that in some ways that goes without saying, but Pedro got in. But Pedro also did things other places. He was in Montreal. Pedro only won the one title with the Red Sox and then left. I think Pedro left the Mets or left the Red Sox the season after they won. He went right to the Mets in 05, I believe. Yep. He was a Met 05, 06, 07, 08. And then he was with the Phillies for a little while in 09. Pitched against the Yankees in the World Series. The game. Yep. That's right. So, yeah, he was he was a, he was actually a Red Sox for one, two, three, four. He was only a Red Sox for, what, seven years, which is a lot, but it's not, you know, certainly compared to like Ortiz. And chances are nobody else from that Red Sox team gets in the Hall of Fame. Manny would, but there's issues there. Uh, well, Schilling, I guess that's that's its own category. I, I do think Schilling gets in one day, but even Schilling was not there the amount of time that Ortiz was. Schilling was probably on the Red Sox, what, four years, I want to say? So uh, let's see. you're likely to see the architect of the Red Sox get into the Hall of Fame at some point with Epstein, uh, Theo Epstein, but yeah, he'll get in. perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And that's in, that's a good point. That's a good point, too, because we were watching the the captain, the Jeter documentary last night, and they interviewed Cashman. And, you know, you don't realize how long Cashman's been the GM of the Yankees, so he'll probably get into the Hall of Fame. And so you're going to see these general managers get into the Hall of Fame. I, I, I wonder what it's going to like be like to see a Hall of Fame plaque with Brian Cashman or Theo Epstein's face on it. It's going to be a little bit out of place. But no, you're Allison. I think that's exactly right. I think, I mean, Theo Epstein, everybody loves Epstein. So he'll, he'll definitely get in the hall of fame when the time comes, but player wise, not that many others. Yeah. I feel like Epstein's plaque is just going to can basically say like ended to yeah. most storied droughts in baseball history, bringing world series to the, both the Red Sox and the Cubs and you know, really nothing else he has to do matter. <laughs> like, yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, it was, it was a cool ceremony. And then we went back into the, I guess, do either of you have anything else to add about the ceremony itself? And then we should talk a little bit more about the activities we were privileged to enjoy afterwards. Yeah, I'm good on the ceremony. So then you go back and it's cool. And they have these availabilities with the hall of famers and they brought in Koufax, then they brought in Oliva, and then the third was Ortiz. And that's you're just basically at a press conference. Now, it was very clear that it was made clear to us, I should say, that we, this was not the time for questions about their career. It was more just specific to their thoughts on the day and what it felt like to be a Hall of Famer. So, so Jim Cott was first, and, and I'm looking at my notes again here and this was where he made the note about how he felt like he might've gotten in sooner if he had retired earlier. They asked him if there was anybody else from his generation who he thought 
should be inducted. He mentioned Tommy John, who was a teammate of his, uh, maybe multiple places, but definitely on the Yankees for a couple of years in the early 80s. You felt good for Jim Codd. He said something along the lines of, I always kind of thought that the Hall of Fame would, was in the rearview mirror for me. And for a guy who, despite being in his 80s, still a member of the baseball community, still does games on MLB Network, you'd imagine that he's the kind of guy for the next few years, at least, will still, he'll go back. He'll go to the ceremony. And you're happy for a guy like that, that he gets to be a Hall of Famer for a few years. Hopefully more than a few years, but at least for a few years. Yeah, I I think that's a good point, too, is like, too often they give it to these guys who either just passed away or been gone a few years. And it's like, yeah, let the guy have a couple more summers where he gets to go to Cooperstown and, you know, be a, be a hall of famer. So they did cot and then they did Oliva. I believe it was Oliva who made the comment that he'd been getting his speech ready for 45 years. So <laughs> he wasn't nervous. And he and for both Oliva and for Ortiz, there was Spanish language media. So some of the questions were in, were in Spanish and others were in English. And it was also kind of cool because, you know, and this just kind of maybe shows what a, a sports dork I am, but it was cool to be sitting in the room with some of these writers who I'm familiar with. I've read their books. I've read articles, you know, Steve Buckley, who covers the Red Sox for the athletics. And before that was with, I believe, one of the Boston papers, right, Allison? I think it was at the Globe. He was with the Globe and then Tyler Kepner, who I believe writes for the New York Times on baseball and has written. A, he's got a forthcoming book about the World Series that comes out in a couple of months. So that I'm already excited for. So it was kind of neat just to kind of be part of that community for for a day, too. So I, I got a kick out of that. Ortiz's press availability. I don't know that there was anything overly noteworthy about it. He did. At one point, somebody asked him a very, very long-winded question in Spanish, referencing A-Rod, Sosa, Manny, and we recorded it, and we, we listened to it afterwards, and we still didn't entirely get it, but it seemed to be asking kind of, do they, did Ortiz think that they belonged in the Hall of Fame? That was kind of the impression that I got. It sounded like that, and it was, I mean, also those are all Latin players, too, so it would makes sense but you know using those names in that context you got to imagine the question was about guys who would be hall of famers if not for being credibly linked to performance enhancing drugs but obviously being in spanish it was hard to get the exact context of it and you wonder if that was like as close as anybody was going to get to sort of broaching the steroid issue with ortiz in that forum so it was interesting. It was kind of like, and part of it was just, it was a very long question. It felt like the guy was just talking forever. And it was like, oh, is he asking something kind of awkward here? But again, you know, not being a, you know, not being a Spanish speaker since, since college at the latest, it was, it was hard to kind of flesh out, but I thought it was cool. Um, we took a bunch of pictures, Allison, I think what of all the pictures you took, what two thirds of them were of Ortiz from that <laughs> press conference. Probably, that's probably a good, a good estimation. Yes. <laughs> and that must have been biased. And that must have been cool for you just being that close to him. Yeah. For that press think, availability. Yeah, You don't really get that close to the, you know, one of the players that you've seen leave your team to three championships. It was, you know, and he had his you know trademark smile and was just 
seemingly very at ease with what he was doing. So it was fun to watch him in that environment. And he's a big guy up close. You know, seeing him in street clothes and just, you know, sitting and just being a human being, you don't realize what a big man he is. No, and it was good. To, you know, I th- a couple of the questions they tried to allude to this and he didn't really bite on this either. But after the incident in the Dominican a few years ago, he, you know, lost a lot of weight and a lot of his muscle tone and things like that. So it was good to see him looking back like himself and healthy. That's another thing that I think, and I didn't think of it much that day either, but when you talk about David Ortiz, there was a time period there a couple years back where we all thought he was going to die. Yes, I believe the Red Sox were essentially were able to get him to Mass General to save his life. They, you know, the where he was being treated before was not not working. So it, it came very close. Because you and I had that conversation. We it didn't seem like it was going to end well. And so Thankfully, he was able to be there and able to get into the Hall of Fame and and be there. And he just like you said, he just they all did. But he just seems so happy to be able to be inducted. Yeah. And I think to be able to share it with his family, the one thing went back to sorry, back to the induction. We didn't mention his daughter sang the national anthem, which I think was a very Mm -hmm. sort of proud moment for him. So um, and to have all of his kids there and things like that, to be able to see it was pretty cool. And I believe they asked him about that as well in the press press event was, you know, what did that mean for you? And he obviously spoke glowingly of having his daughter be such a part of the day. I also have a note here under Ortiz, uh, Red Sox colors, suit and buttons. So I noticed that his whole outfit for the day, including the buttons on his suit, were in that sort of dark blue and red Boston Red Sox motif. So I thought that was which is was, also the Dominican flag. too. So. Uh, so he killed two birds with one stone. And he's known as a pretty flashy dresser. So I wasn't sure what he was going to come out in. So he was wearing a pretty classic look for what one might. If you saw pictures from other parts of the induction weekend of other parties and things he attended, he was looking much, much louder clothing, shall we say? Yeah, probably louder than Jim Cott, I would imagine. (laughs) But so it was not that it ever wouldn't be, I guess, but it was three guys that you just couldn't really help but be very, very happy for that they got in. And that was definitely my biggest takeaway was that they all three in different ways, but it was really great. And it was funny. I mean, maybe not so much with with Cot and Ortiz, but in other ways, they had ties to each other. Cot and Oliva had been teammates. Oliva and Ortiz had the, the Latin American, the Dominican thing. So it was nice that they had that kind of relationship with, with each other in one way or another that I thought created a sort of a sense of a fraternity and a brotherhood there, which I really, really thought was a positive. And then I guess the last thing we should talk about is we got to go down back back onto Main Street, back into the gallery for the unveiling of the plaques. And it did take a while. Uh, They said that six of the seven plaques had arrived, but a seventh was held up with somebody's family was spending too much time with it, which I mean, I'm I'm guessing that probably was Ortiz. But who knows? It could have been everybody but Bud Fowler. It would have been funny if it was just Dave Winfield hugging the Bud Fowler (laughs) plaque, just just being a jerk for no reason. But and so we, I think we saw we saw Ortiz and then we saw just as they were. I think we left just as they had just brought Cotton and uh, Cotton Oliva out, if I'm remembering correctly. Ortiz is the only one we got pictures of, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, they, we have, it was definitely three of them we were there for. Yeah. 
they were asking as like as the they were coming out they were trying to get the folks who were there representing the local media for that those cities up further up to the front so that was part of the reason of not getting those is we couldn't really see them and there was a lot of kansas city media there which i thought was really cool um, for buck o'neill yeah yeah including royals reporters as well yeah i think we rode back on one of the buses with with a couple of them didn't we yep the other thing that was interesting that i found out was that almost all of the plaques and they they really like they bring them in and like there's a carpenter there. This is not just they don't just hang them on the wall like you're hanging your coat up. They really like, you know, they're, they're, there's there's drills and, and hammers involved in this whole thing as they're, you know, kind of bolting them into the wall. But then I think of the seven plaques, I think five of them were leaving again to go various places. Cot and Oliva were going to Minnesota Ortiz was going up to Boston. In fact, my in-laws, Allison's parents were just sort of coincidentally at that game a couple days later when they had the plaque there and Ortiz was honored by the Red Sox for his Hall of Fame induction. And O'Neill's was going to Kansas City and, and I, another one was going somewhere. So it was really kind of funny. They, they, they do this whole big thing about nailing these plaques to the walls and then they get borrowed for a couple of days to to fan throughout the country. And we even noticed as they were carrying the plaques in, you know, some of the guys that were carrying it, their arms were almost shaking a little bit with the, uh, with the weight of them. Yeah. Cause they had to hold them up and show them to everybody. So that was cool. It was kind of, it was at the end of a long day and we, you know, we had to drive. I mean, we were driving back to our parents' house, which is over two hours. And then Andrew was getting up and going to work in the morning, you know, 45 minutes away. Allison and I were getting up working at, my parents' house and then driving five hours back to Maryland. So we were all kind of ready for the day to be coming to an end. But I, I was glad that we stuck around at least for the beginning part of the the plaque unveiling. And I'll just have to check out the Gil Hodges plaque the next time I'm there. So yeah, it was I, I it was a long day. It was a lot of stuff that, you know, was very ceremonial. So you had to kind of uh Wait and, and exercise patience in a lot of ways, but uh, you know when you kind of think back on it the next day or in the ensuing weeks, it's like, wow, that was all really, really cool. And I really felt like we got in everything that we wanted to get in. We kind of observed the media room for a little while. We went downtown. We ate at the pizza place that Allison and I love. I went to the bookstore that I love. Allison went and visited Henry. We got to see some Hall of Famers and and also just some players out on the street. So we kind of experienced the whole everything that that a Hall of Fame induction day has to offer in that sort of eight or nine hours that we were there. So it was it was definitely worth it. We should send some thanks here. First of all, we should thank Andrew and my parents, whose contribution to the day was watching the um previously mentioned three-legged boxer mix thumper newman who is our beloved pup and they kept an eye on him for the day at their house well the, the three of us went up to cooperstown go ahead i'm sorry andrew didn't thumper eat a bird 
Oh, I think he did. Yeah, he put a dead bird in his mouth, which he's known to do. Seems to be some controversy about whether that bird was dead in the first place or not, by the way. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. Well, he's trying to make us feel a little bit better. Oh, did he did he kill the baby bird? That's what I believe dad said. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're a jerk. Gosh. Well, yeah, that's the hello old sports mascot for you. Thumper. He's a sweet boy. And then in all seriousness, I, I want to thank Arnie for for everything he's done and putting the pot out there and getting it out there um, and in sort of doing all this coordination for for us to do this day. And hopefully it's something that we'll be able to do in the future. And maybe at some point also in the future, we'll be able to make ourselves out to Canton to to go to the a Football Hall of Fame induction, which I know that several of several of the Sports History Network guys have done in the past. So we want to thank them as well. So, Andrew, did you have anything else to add? No, I think we pretty much summed it up. It was a, a great experience, and, and we're lucky that we were able to um, really stretch the limits of media in terms of getting a media pass for it. <laughs> and we intend to do so again. Allison, <laughs> thank you so much for, for being a part of the day and for joining us here as well tonight on the Sports History Network's Hello Old Sports. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, a mercifully shorter episode from us tonight, uh, just about an hour. So hope you all enjoyed it. And even if you cannot make it in on a media pass, we would definitely encourage you all in the future to check out Have a really good baseball career and get elected. And go that way. <laughs> it's like that old stupid joke that when, you know, the New York joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? practice <laughs> yes. so but in all seriousness we would encourage you all to check out a um check out an induction ceremony in cooperstown because it's really not none of us had ever done it we'd all talked about doing it in the past and it's something we're, we're glad we did hope to hope to do again in the future and we'll be back uh with a most likely longer episode uh, on episode 52 of the podcast but until then for my lovely wife allison and our murderous dog thumper i'm dan newman And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.